You're joining us today on this cold and rainy morning in a small square in the city of London. It's called Postman's Park because the building to one side of it once was the general post office and postmen used to take their breaks here, uh, come here for their lunch. But we're not here to track down a missing parcel or pay for someone else's postage. You really don't want to know about my dad's total inability to put the right stamps on an envelope. No, <laughs> uh, we're here today to talk about a memorial which is located here in Postman's Park. And here it is. It's incredibly simple, unassuming structure. I mean, it is a structure. It looks more like a bus shelter. And let me try and describe it for you. It's a lean-to, let's be blunt, maybe 50 feet from end to end, uh, made of wood and roofing tiles. It's fixed to a brick wall. And within it, there's a bench built into that wall and one, two, two and a bit rows of tiles, ceramic tiles. And when you look at those rows, in each one, there's about 20, 24 rectangular sets of about six shiny tiles with nice borders. It could be a kitchen splashback, really. It's that simple. And, and each of those sets has a name, a date, and a short description of an event. Um, here's one. It's actually one of the first ones to be installed. Right at the, it's, it's at the far left end of this. And it says, Thomas Griffin, fitter's labourer, April the 12th, 1899, in a boiler explosion at a Battersea sugar refinery, was fatally scalded in returning to search for his mate. And here's another. It's this one just right in front of me here. Elizabeth Boxall, aged 17 of Bethnal Green, who died of injuries received in trying to save a child from a runaway horse, June the 20th. 1888. Do you know the name of this place, this memorial? I mean, it's, it's written right there on either side of a drain pipe, the Memorial to Heroic Self-Sacrifice, 1899, and it's the subject of today's podcast. Hi again, and welcome back to Trapped History. I'm Oswin Baker. And I'm Carla O'Shaughnessy. And we're here to share hidden stories of unsung heroes. In today's episode, we want to introduce you to a modern, meaningful and moving memorial. And it's the Victorians what built it. All right, Oswin, it is cold and grey and miserable. Why have you taken us out of our lovely cosy studio to this place? Well, as you said, Carla, the sun is just beginning to break out on the buildings around us. So today we're reporting from central London. You will hear traffic. You will hear people. And so, yes, this is different from what we would normally be doing. It definitely is. We're um, (laughs) outdoors. Um, uh, We're not looking at one particular person at all. We're looking at at a thing. And and I think the thing for me is that this place, this memorial, is the idea of trapped history writ large. It's rendered in brick and wood. And this is what trapped history is all about. So how is this what trapped history is all about. Can you elaborate a little bit for me, please? Well, yeah. So, so this is 1899, uh, mm-hmm. 1900. Yep. The height of the, of the Victorian British Empire. And this monument, though, it isn't a thing of marble. It's not a thing of bronze. It isn't one of those um, coat and trouser statues, which were so familiar 
um, from all of our city centres around the country. Um, it isn't a statue of an empire builder, it isn't a statue of a dead white man. Really, for want of a better word, this is a memorial to ordinary people. Hmm. Okay, so who's behind this then? So the memorial is the brainchild of a painter, George Frederick Watts, G.F. Watts. There's a strange little woods, wooden statue to him in the middle of this. It's very small. Okay. Again, it's unassuming, it's modest. And he was very much part of the, it was called the aesthetic movement, the symbolist artistic movement in the late 19th century. He said, I paint ideas not things. Mm. And it's all very allegorical stuff. I mean, he did pictures called things like hope and justice. He did statues called physical energy. Really? Yeah. Sounds a bit pretentious. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, he, he, he did a lot of portraits as well. He okay. did a lot of neoclassical guff. And, and there are <laughs> historical paintings he did, which are in the Houses of Parliament. Take a deep breath here. One of those paintings is called Alfred inciting the Saxons to prevent the landing of the Danes. Wow. I mean, you know, this is a guy who calls pictures justice and stuff. I don't know why I didn't just call it help. You know, something <laughs> no. slightly pithier, slightly easier. But, you know, by the 1890s, George is the grand old man of British art. Uh, he refuses two peerages. And a journal, an art journal of the time, said that he, and I quote, stands apart like some mountain peak in lonely grandeur. Mm. So, you know, he's, he's very high and mighty at this stage. And John Ruskin, the hugely influential critic, um, and also huge prude, who famously was absolutely revolted and disgusted at the idea that his wife could ever have pubic hair, um, he <laughs> described George as the only real painter of thought we have in England. A painter of thought? Okay, you've lost me now, Oswin, sorry. Well, I mean, <laughs> it, it's, it's similar to, to what this monument, this, this memorial is, that this is an idea made real. This is an idea made out of bricks and stone and tiles and wood. And I think that that is the sort of stuff that George was trying to work towards, you know, whether he's doing a statue called Physical Energy, whether he's doing uh, paintings called Hope and Justice. This was about the idea of the everyday hero. Mm. And George had been, he'd been sort of struggling and trying to work out how he could do something to, to celebrate or commemorate or memorialize that idea. He'd been, you know, trying to work that one out for years. And in, in 1887, so that's you know, nearly 15 years before this memorial was constructed. In 1887, he wrote in a letter to the Times, the material prosperity of a nation is not an abiding possession. The deeds of its people are. And so the question really for George was, how's he going to make that happen? So we know a bit about George now, but what about this memorial? Who are all these people up on these tiles? So there, there are 62 people who okay. are commemorated here, memorialised here, remembered here, whatever, whatever word we feel comfortable with. There's a scattering. I mean, where we're standing at the moment, there are three police officers in a row here. So there are a few police officers. There are a couple of fire officers. There are a few people who worked on the railways. But, but more than anything... These are overwhelmingly men, women and children who, in the course of an ordinary day, not as part of their job, 
are faced with something extraordinary and run towards it. Yeah. And, you know, and, and this is a really important point. It has always been an incomplete memorial right from the beginning. There's space here for 120 plaques. But when it was unveiled in 1900, uh, there are only four. It's these four plaques here. Thomas Griffin, Mary Rogers, George Stephen Funnell. Those are the only four that are there at the beginning. A couple of years later, another nine are added. Then there's another 11. George himself dies in 1904, so his wife takes over and she puts in a whole a whole row in 1908. But after that, you know, there's a few drips and drabs along the way, but it pretty much shuts up shop in the early 1930s, still unfinished. There is one modern day plaque here, actually, if we move over and have a closer look. It was added in 2009. Um, do you remember the Natalie Portman and the Jude Law film Closer? Because that actually I featured tried, this memorial. I tried watching it once and I stopped halfway through. I'm did you? I did see it at the cinema. I remember watching it. <laughs> but anyway, this uh, the film did bring the memorial back to some kind of public attention. But I'll read this one to you now. It says, Lee Pitt, reprographic operator, aged 30, saved a drowning boy from the canal at Thamesmead, but sadly was unable to save himself. June the 7th, 2007. I think it's a shame that that's the last one. It seems odd that there was such a big gap, yeah. then 2007, and then nothing. And there is so much space for yeah. more. I wonder why it hasn't continued. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's a shame. I mean, you know, the vast majority of these are from the 1870s and 1880s. And obviously, George had been sort of drawing up his lists for a long time. And he'd been scouring newspapers and things like that and trying to find out people who he felt would be a good fit for the memorial to heroic self-sacrifice. But yeah, as you say, I mean, the last one here, there's one from 1927, but then after that, it's, it's what, 80 years until Lee Pitt and nothing since, which, yeah, does, it feels a shame. What's fascinating about this place is the context. I mean, this is 1900 and George had been trying to get the memorial off the ground for decades. So we're firmly rooted in late Victorian England, which is a place where if, if you want to commemorate or memorialize someone or something, you, you whack up a statue, marble, bronze, bish, bash, bosh, job done. And this period, sort of the 1890s to 1910s, this is a boom time for statues. In 1897, Queen Victoria has a diamond jubilee, and that's the excuse for a huge expansion in, uh, for want of a better word, urban commemoration. And the statues which today we have problems with all come from this time. There's the Cecil Road statue at Oxford, 1911. In America, all those Confederacy statues, that's 1890s to 1910s, most of them. And don't forget Colston in Bristol, where I live. He was toppled last year for his role in the, yeah. the slave trade, of course. Yeah. And that was uh, 1895. Yeah. Um, yeah, he'd been dead for nearly 200 years. Yeah. Um, and they're all thrown up at around the same time that this memorial, this thing of tiles and wood, is erected. That's the first time I've used the word erected in this, <laughs> this episode. Uh, I mean, and you couldn't get more of a contrast with the great man approach to history. The other thing in terms of context is all this is happening before the reimagining, the reinvention of, of what art is, of what sculpture is, which happens largely in the 1900s and the 1910s. But this 
1900, and it's a very traditional art scene. It's a very traditional view of what history is and what history should be. I mean, don't forget Alfred inciting the Saxons to prevent the landing of the Danes. That's the context. That's the world in which this appears. And that's why uh, this is a convoluted way of introducing our guest. We really need some help on this because, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Carla, uh, we ain't no artists here no. on Trapped History. <laughs> Absolutely not. I'm delighted to welcome today's guest, the public artist and sculptor Ian Walter. Ian, it's lovely to have you join us here on this soggy morning. Thank you. It's very good to be here. I'm doubly pleased, Ian, because we really need your help in helping us understand the processes that artists go through. I mean, whether those are artistic, whether those are philosophical, practical, I mean, economic, I suppose, as well. Yeah, well, um, certainly this one taking decades to come to fruition was an economic point, wasn't it? Yeah. You had to find a place, but then fund it as well. I know that you've been here before and you've seen it but you know your your what are your impressions of this of, of the memorial to heroic self-sacrifice well i remember the first time i came here probably 10 years ago and i was gobsmacked because it's completely unlike any other victorian memorial isn't it mm. it is democratic in a way that victorian memorial memorials aren't you yeah. know it's it's yeah. as you said it's foregrounding ordinary people perhaps in extraordinary circumstances but yes, nevertheless yeah, yeah. so I, I was really struck by it when I first saw it and again this morning it, you know it's lost nothing of its impact I don't think I, I'm sure I've used this word already, but sort of the simplicity of it. I mean, there was a, a newspaper report at the time it, it was first uh, installed in which they said that there is no art in it, which is very interesting, you know, that this is an artist who produces this thing. But that was very much the predominant view at the time, wasn't there? Mm. Art could only be made of marble or bronze mm. or paint in mm. a frame. Yeah. You know, there was no other art. Yeah. And yet now we would look at it and see it entirely, its whole setting as art. Yeah. I think it would be really great for us and for our listeners to understand, again, in terms of the artistic processes, how you approached a very similar commission or, or, or idea when you produced the artwork Safe Haven. So, I mean, you know, if we, if we can sort of jump in on that and just, just for our listeners, it's a statue, a memorial, um, and there are so many things, a climbing frame, I suppose, <laughs> as well, <laughs> um, in Harwich to commemorate the arrival of the kinder transport children, which is about 10,000 Jewish children from Central and Eastern Europe who came over in the year just before the Second World War. 1938. Yeah. I mean... Can you paint a picture for us about it? Yes. So the moment I've captured in the Safe Haven Memorial is the, the moment when the first of those 10,000 children arrived. They were on a ship called the uh, SS Prague. And the, you imagine these children aged between 4 and 17 were, all, in almost all cases, away from their parents for the first time supervised by a tiny handful of adults, even though there were many hundreds of children on the, the ship. Uh, and then they arrive in a country they've never been to before, where a language they don't speak uh, is needed. 
And so I've captured the moment where the first five children walk down the gangplank and, and I've actually sculpted the, created the gangplank out of bronze. And there are five life-size children on it. And the girl at the front is just putting one foot onto British soil. That's wow. the moment. Now, because it was the first ship, the, the SS Prague, the press were there. So there are many hundreds of photographs taken of oh, that right. arrival. So I used some of those photographs. I chose specific children from the photographs. And then I got live children, one of my children, and children of my friends to, to model them. But So it's this combination of, of a, a photograph and, and a, a live model. So are, are the faces of the children, are those faces of effectively real children who were on the SS Prague or are they sort of composites of them and the photos and your yeah, children? They're absolute, absolutely composites. I found if you, if you create figures just from photographs, they end up being a, a little bit wooden. And if you get a six-year-old boy to make a pose like someone in a photograph, they do it in a very uniquely <laughs> six-year-old boy way, which is much more realistic than, than just slavishly follow a, following a photograph. Can you imagine your kids doing that? Oh, no, they'd be jumping all over the place. They wouldn't. <laughs> so, so, so I suppose that's one of the things that's really interesting for me is about the um, sort of the composite nature of it. And, and here at the Memorial to Heroic Self-Sacrifice, although there are 62 names of real people here, as a as a as a memorial, it has a sort of a composite nature to it because you don't come here to to look at William Donald or Edmund Emery. You come here to experience the whole. Yes, and I think on leaving this memorial, you don't really remember very many names. Mm. What you remember are the acts, mm. yeah. the the heroism, and similarly with the. The Kinder Transport Memorial, Safe Haven. I tried to imagine these young refugees and the storm of emotions they must have felt on arriving in Harwich. So what I did was separate out those emotions and gave each of the five children a different emotion. So the girl at the front is striding forward confidently and there's a girl peeking from behind her curiously, yes, yeah, timidly. Yeah. Yeah. And there's another one chewing her ID label nervously. Yeah. And there's the boy, a boy standing tall at the back, looking back up the gangplank. Because, of course, 85% of the children never saw their families again as they perished in the Holocaust. Wow. They were all okay. told different things, weren't they? Some of them were told they'd be going away for a while and some were told they would see their parents, you know, the next day. And, you know, they all had completely different stories. Yes. Yeah. And they were allowed to take very, very little on the ship. They were allowed to take a sandwich and an extra coat. I think that there wasn't much else. Yeah. And I spoke to Lord Dubbs, Alf Dubbs, who was a kinder transport refugee. And he said that, he threw away his sandwich so that he could take a book. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if he regretted that decision. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I think a book every day, every day of the week, a book. When you're hungry, you know. Yeah. <laughs> There's always someone else's sandwich you can make. Yeah, There's always someone else's. Um, <laughs> interesting what you're, sa- you're, you're, you're saying about your 
you're seeing the whole. You're seeing everyone here, and you don't come away with with one name or one image or one story that in particular. Um, I, I think it would be quite useful, actually, for us now just to to actually focus on one particular story here, and and it's the story of Alice Ayres, and. I know that earlier, Carla, you were talking about Lee Pitt, whose memorial was put here in 2007 after the film Closer drew attention to the memorial. And Alice Ayres was a name which one of the characters in the film took. And so they took the name Alice Ayres and sort of and, and used that as their pseudonym. And this, 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 this is what it says on Alice Ayres' uh, plaque. Alice Ayres, daughter of a bricklayer's labourer, uh, that's pretty poor, a bricklayer's labourer, who by intrepid conduct saved three children from a burning house in Union Street, Borough, at the cost of her own young life. April the 24th, 1885. At the time when this was put up and when Alice's plaque uh, was installed here she was the the poster girl for the memorial if you were around in the 1890s everybody knew who Alice Ayres was there were plays there were books there were poems here's here's a a bit of a poem from one of them Uh, Alice Ayres on the stairs do you hear the horses come and I'm not going to go any further with it because it is absolutely a shocker of a poem there were paintings there were murals uh, huge monuments at her funeral there were 10,000 mourners her coffin was carried on foot for over a mile by 16 firemen working in in shifts um, in their full dress uniform. There was a memorial service at Southwark Cathedral. 50 years after her death, a street in Southwark was named after her. So, you know, she was the most important person, in a way, from this memorial. It's interesting, isn't it, that of all these different heroes, she's the one that fired the public imagination and created this huge following and crowd and memorials and you wouldn't have thought that was possible before the internet you know she was trending she went viral at the end of the 19th (laughs) century she went viral (laughs) of course she did yeah Yeah. and i mean reading sort of the newspaper reports there are these very lavish illustrations of her standing um uh, at the window with the children in her arms and a fireman on a ladder trying to trying to reach her she was able to to throw three of the children down to the to the public below and two of them landed well but the third child didn't survive one of the things which is fascinating also about the way her story is reported is it really fitted in with a victorian idea of duty because the story was that alice was a servant that she was a serving girl you know, and the children were her charges and she was looking after them. This is from the Pall Mall Gazette. Uh, it says, The heroism of Alice Ayres was greater still, for it can have been inspired by nothing else than sheer bravery and duty. The thing, though, that was missed out in all of this, and I think deliberately so, is that Alice wasn't just looking after these children as a serving girl. These children were her nieces. Alice was the sister of the children's mother. 
and was working as a maidservant in her sister's house. And so, yes, there is duty, but there's family here as well. And there's this very strong Victorian idea, which George, who created the memorial here, was not immune to, about the lower orders duty and fealty to to their betters yes and his process of selecting who should be represented in this memorial of course didn't happen in a vacuum it wasn't vanilla was it it was he had his own biases and and, and values mm. that there would are, be represented no absolutely and there aren't many women here do you say it's seven Oh, is it nine? Okay. And they're all caregivers and they're always rescuing children or or family members. I think the Victorians had a real problem with the idea of women being heroes. You'd never hear of a a woman rescuing a man, for example, which is is quite interesting. Well, yes, and you talked about this amazing rush of putting up memorials at the end of the 1900s. And, of course, the vast majority of them were Victoria. Yeah, You know, there, there were huge numbers of Victoria statues put up, but almost no statues of other women. Mm. So if you exclude royalty, to this day, I think there are more statues in Britain of men called John than <laughs> they are of named women. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> OK, that, that's, that's definitely another episode of Trapped History. Statues called John. <laughs> <laughs> And I suppose that's something that that I want to uh, get your thoughts on again in a bit more detail, just about the concept, and we've talked about it already, about memorialization and commemorization and memory and remembrance. And I think one of the things, again, just about the context of this place is, you know, we, we are now very well versed in remembrance. But if you look before the First World War, there are, across the country, there are a few memorials to the Crimean War, a few memorials to other things like that. But it's only in the aftermath of the First World War that you get the Minute Silence, Remembrance Sunday, the 11th hour on the 11th of the 11th. You get the Cenotaph as a memorial, which yeah. is literally means empty tomb. And it is very clearly I not there. I know that's what it meant. Yeah. And the thing about the cenotaph is it, as it says on it, it is there to commemorate the glorious dead, not a, a named individual, not you know, famous people or anything. It is the first really, truly universal idea of, of, of memorialization and, mem- and remembrance. That's interesting, isn't it? I wonder if they knew at the time how radical that was, that it was a tomb... Uh, the tomb of the unknown soldier, as you say, the glorious yeah. dead. Well, the interesting thing about the tomb to the unknown soldier is that I think it's called the unknown warrior. In America, they've got an unknown soldier. We're warriors here, uh-huh. of course. Is that in the BBC Great Britain poll, the unknown warrior came 76th. In the sandwich, mo- most famous, in the most famous, in the great, in the poll of great who are the Britons. Great Britons, sandwiched weirdly in between Bob Geldof and Robbie Williams. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that says so much about you know that th- this person, this symbol has such resonance that they can be um, as important to the country a hundred years later. But I mean, how how 
how do you as an artist, whether you're whether we're talking about Safe Haven or whether we're talking about your astonishing statue to the children of Calais, or whether we're talking about some of the other memorials that you've done or, or statues that you've done, how does your understanding of remembering and remembrance and memorialization, how does that fit into what you're doing? If I use memorial, which was the title of my climate change denial piece, as the example, in that case, I wanted to address prominent British climate change deniers. So this is a decade ago. Climate change by them was well understood. It not really up for debate. But there were these uh, British journalists, politicians, uh, who were constantly trying to muddy the waters, slow down progress towards a cleaner future. Yeah. And my thinking there, which is entirely about, about m- remembrance, is people who made those choices to put their own... Uh, feathering their own nests ahead of the world staving off catastrophic climate change, they shouldn't allow, be allowed to be forgotten. They shouldn't, it shouldn't be possible for them later on, decades later, to say, oh, I, you know, I wasn't a climate change denier. I was just open-minded. Nonsense. Yeah. So, so I decided to, to make a memorial. Uh, and, I, and I thought very carefully about how do we remember names of normally good people, not bad people. Yeah. Uh, and the model I used was the Vietnam War Memorial in Washington, D.C., which is the black marble, very, very long slab. And I made just a, a very small segment of it and engraved it with half a dozen prominent uh, <laughs> British climate change deniers. And I, I expected legal issues, shall we say? Yep. <laughs> At least one gallery declined to show it because they feared legal issues. Okay. But I had, I had sort of designed it with that in mind. So I did a Google search for prominent British climate denier and if whoever came up on page one of Google went on my memorial. Yeah, and I figured you, that you, would stand up in court. <laughs> yeah, good idea. You, you were doing what George was doing. You were trawling, exactly. trawling the, exactly. the, the internet rather but, than the newspaper. But sort of for the opposite reason. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've um, never heard of it being turned on its head like that before. It's, um, yeah, it's great. The language of it, the sculptural language, is one of permanence. You know, the Vietnam War Memorial will be there forever. Yeah. These things are permanent. Yeah. And so the people I named on the climate memorial were terrified by that. And given that, the language of this memorial here, the memorial to heroic self-sacrifice, I mean, it couldn't be further away from that. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's definitely permanent, but it's also incomplete. There, there may be at some point in the future more plaques. Don't really know whether there will be, but it is, it, it's, it's. Yes, the aesthetic used is not the aesthetic of a memorial. No. You know, it's the sort of tiles you get in tube stations. Yeah. You know, yeah. Victorian tube stations, yeah. isn't it? And and it's the sort of arts and crafts feel. Yeah. So yeah. it's a very domestic, almost domestic sort of aesthetic. But for that and for its in, incomplete nature, 
it's still an extraordinary reality, isn't it? It is a marker put down a hundred years ago that all of these hitherto nameless heroes should be remembered. And that implies this great question of who should we memorialise? You know, is it generals on horses or is it heroes, real heroes? So, Ian, we always ask all of our guests who they would like to nominate for the Trapped History Hall of Fame. So who is your unsung hero that we should know more about? So my unsung hero is someone I only came across a week ago. Okay. (laughs) Um, And I was astounded that I'd never heard of them. So I think they are unsung and deserve to be in your... Our Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame. (laughs) Yeah. That's it. So his name was Charles Sergeant Jagger. And uh, he was born in Yorkshire in 1885 and went to, I think he was first um, apprenticed at Mappin and Webb, aged 14, to be a metal engraver. Okay. But then went to Sheffield School of Art and from there the Royal College of Art in London, where he was understudied to a sculptor called Edward Lanteri. And when I came across that name, I thought, oh, that's interesting, because when I learned sculpture, I used the manual written at about this time, end of the 19th century, by Edward Lanteri. He wrote the most fantastic and enduring manual for sculptors and how to teach sculpture that's ever been written, still in print, it's never been out of print. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he was a very, very successful student at the Royal College of Art. And then he won the big prize at the British School in Rome, for his sculpture so he was flying high but he won that prize in 1914 and of course the first world war was declared so he gave up his scholarship and joined the artists rifles which and it fascinates me there was a company of artists yeah. in the first yeah. world war i didn't know that yeah, wow that's, that's so interesting a, there's a podcast yeah, hey? yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway after that he, he transferred to the royal worcester regiment i think he saw action on the Western Front and at Gallipoli. He was injured three times. Uh, He was awarded Military Cross for gallantry. Wow. And then I didn't realise, but after the First World War, there were several years when there really was no appetite to start putting up memorials. I think it was too raw and too Mm. recent. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But by... 1921, he was, he'd been appointed to make the memorial to the uh, Royal Artillery, uh, which is on Park Lane. It's a huge memorial. And the convention then, one of the conventions was kind of practical and the other one was a legal requirement, that the government had said there should be no representation of dead British soldiers. And the other was a, a more of a, a kind of convention that soldiers would be represented in a sort of more of a, a representative way, a, a, a more a, a less a, a less honest way, if you see if you see what I mean. Okay. A more generalist. So he broke both those conventions on mm. this m- memorial. It includes a howitzer that's bigger than life size. Yes, carved from stone. Right at the top of it, yeah. it's got yeah. this Extraordinary. And then it has four bronze figures at its cardinal points. 
and they are different members of the crew for a, a howitzer but they are rendered in the most extraordinary realism you you know you see their strength their strong jaw but their 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 weakness as well they're human mm. you know it was an incredible re- realism and this is a time of modernism of yeah, symbolism as well in sculpture yeah uh, and yet he went completely against the grain with this incredible realism mm. and then the fourth of the figures is a dead soldier so three of them stand and one of them's lying down shrouded in his great coat with his helmet on his chest and it's incredibly incredibly moving mm. so powerful yeah. yeah 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 amazing oh well thank you so much for sharing him with us ian Sounds like an amazing character. Do you know what happened to him afterwards? Did he Um, become the grand old man of British art? He did not. He he was very busy in those years after the First World War. He did several memorials. The other very noticeable one, or, or prominent one in London, is at Paddington Station. The Great Western Railway World oh, War I, I saw Memorial. someone do a post about that yesterday, yeah. and it yeah. was very powerful. Yeah, fabulous. Yeah, and then after that sort of died down, he did lots of other sculpture for buildings. He got more into Art Deco and other styles. He'd said at the time of the Artillery Memorial that he could he couldn't conceive of doing anything other than frankness and truth because of his experience in the in the on the western front which you can understand but he died in 1934 so relatively young and there were exhibitions in 35 36 but then really he sort of slipped out of consciousness blue plaques went up in 2018 but I'd still never heard of him a week ago. Yeah, so, wow. Uh, I suppose it's a thing also that people fall fall out of fashion and, and being associated with war memorials would be seen as rather sort of militaristic or some, yes. somehow seen as, as, as not right. Um, and yet, as you say, it's a, it's a very powerful memorial to, to loss. Indeed, indeed. So, Carla, final thoughts? It seems like a strange thing to say of something that's made up of tiles and wood, you know, such a simple structure. But being here actually is really moving, reading all of the different stories. It really makes you think. It's a really lovely place. A content... I can't say that word. A content... Contemplative. I'm not even going to try and say that. (laughs) (laughs) It's a... um, <laughs> a place to think. It's a, it's a place to think and, and to reflect. Um, so I'm really glad that we came here today. We learned a bit more about it. The first of my final thoughts is I'm bloody freezing. <laughs> yes. And uh, it's been very different from doing this in a studio and rather lovely actually with the sounds of the people and the traffic and everything like that around us um, I think it's have been hell for MK he's going to have real problems <laughs> tidying up some of the sound um, but I mean a, a lot of the stuff that we've talked about uh, together but also uh, with Ian is about the simplicity mm. of something like this and contrasting that with the sort of the 
bluster and the the, the grandeur, and the grandeur yeah. of, of high Victorian life. And, and so this is 1900, 1901, the next year, that's when Edward Elgar's pomp and circumstance marches. So that, that's, you know, land of hope and glory and all that sort of stuff. That's when they start being performed. And so this place here, it has to contend with all of that high Victorian bluster. Mm. But this is really an alternative story, isn't it? It's a story of real, ordinary, kind of nameless people. Yeah, and, and you know, this, again, in terms of the things that are happening, yes, you do have that high Victorian empire uh, going on. But you also have, I mean, in 1884, the NSPCC is founded, the National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. You have this in 1899, uh, 1900. In the 1890s, uh, a man called Charles Booth produced what were the, the London poverty maps to understand how difficult ordinary life was. And you also have, around the same time, some, some rather, I mean, achingly sad photographs by some street photographers. There were two in London, a guy called Paul Martin and someone called Edgar Scammell. Obviously, we can't show anybody any of those photographs on the podcast, but we'll try and have some up on the website, trappedhistory.com. But you might recognise one of Paul Martin's photographs. It was of three young boys, two of them without any shoes on. They're standing on a street corner. It was used on a, on a Thin Lizzy album cover um, uh, from the 70s. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I, th- I mean, I think you're right, Carla, you know, wh- whether it is those photos whether it's the poverty maps or whether it's the memorial to heroic self-sacrifice itself. I think they all remind us of simple truths of what it means to be human. You've been listening to Trapped History, written and presented by Carla O'Shaughnessy and Oswin Baker. Our engineer has been MK Lee. Catch up with more Trapped History on Instagram and visit trappedhistory.com for transcripts, extended interviews and more. And remember what James Baldwin said, people are trapped in history and history is trapped in them. <laughs>